It's time for another episode of Espresso Yourself with Chuck. And now, coming to the mic, your host, Mr. Chuck Knapp. Welcome to Espresso Yourself with Chuck. There are two people in the history of the state of Kansas who were elected to the U.S. House of Representatives, the United States Senate, and elected as governor of the state of Kansas. One was Frank Carlson from Concordia, and the other is my guest today. That is Ambassador Sam Brownback. Ambassador Brownback, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Chuck. It's great to join you, and it's great to see all the progress that JAG has had and um, experienced in the state of Kansas. Well, thanks, and, and we wouldn't be here were it not for you, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, but really, I'd like to start with just a little bit about yourself growing up in rural Kansas, what what uh, made impressions on you as a young person and, and maybe what you thought you wanted to do in high school and, and how that all kind of worked out to your first job and then running for elected office. Well, I thought I wanted to be a farmer. My dad is a farmer. My grandfather was a farmer. Uh, his father had been a farmer and mule trader. And uh, I, hey, sounded good to me. I liked being outside. I liked raising uh, plants and crops. I was in Future Farmers of America. I was uh, taking vocational agriculture. I just thought this is, this is what I want to do. And uh, then I got a scholarship. Uh, and uh, I thought, well, gosh, it seems... A, of shame to waste that money. That was all it kind of took for me to start thinking a different direction. Uh, was elected then uh, state president of the Kansas Future Farmers and, um, you know, enrolled at K-State and, and met my first congressman. You know, the congressman didn't come to my town of Parker, Kansas. We were 250 people. I'd never met one. I, you know, I don't, I know what they do, government class, but I never met one. Uh, and then uh, as state president of Future Farmers, I flew to Washington, D.C., which back then was a huge thing. Wow, off to Washington. I even came back to the home church and did a slideshow of my trip to Washington. That was showing you kind of how, oh, wow, look at this building. And, um, and I met a congressman, Joe Skubitz of the old 5th District in Kansas. And uh, I thought, that's, boy, that seems like great work. I wonder how you get a job like that. Uh, and really started kind of my interest and journey uh, into politics. That's interesting. So you went to K-State, graduated from K-State, uh, went to law school immediately after that? Or was... You know, I took a year off and was a farm broadcaster for a year. Uh, did did uh, worked radio and, and loved that. I, I really enjoyed agriculture. It was my family. It was my background, it was passion. Uh, and was farm broadcaster for a year and then kind of had to decide, well, do I want to continue in farm broadcasting or would I like to go to law school? And, you know, ultimately, I, again, I went to law school uh, partially because I thought, well, here's a way I could work near home. I have a rural practice and still farm. I was still trying to figure my way back to the farm. Uh, and so I went to law school and thinking, well, I'd try to practice law near near my hometown and farm on the side. But you still maybe in the back of your mind thought, oh, this congressman position might be kind of cool. Um, so how because I know you were the youngest ag secretary in the state of Kansas. So you were still kind of following that ag path. 
tell us how how you got from attorney, ag secretary to running for Congress that first time. What what all happened, and and what finally convinced you to to take that opportunity and run for Congress? Uh, you know, it gotten in there my my mind, and I I guess I say that as a you know kind of a thought to your students. I I really think that everybody in life gets presented with this sort of idea that really is a life passion for them. And that so many of us just kind of cover it up or we deny it, or we just think people like me don't do things like that. Uh, Which is, you know, the nature for most. I mean, I grew up on a pig farm in Eastern Kansas in a town of 250 people. And, you know, I'm I'm dreaming of being a congressman. I go, wait a minute, you know, when people like me don't do things like that. Uh, and so you just kind of you, you just kind of cover them up. But I think it's really important when you get a a dream like that in your mind, work with it, and and don't just listen to the people around you saying, "Hey, you're never going to get that done." Or uh, I remember my I'm freshman at K State, and Bob Dole is debating Bill Roy for the U.S. Senate. And my roommate and I were weird enough. We were watching it actually on television. Uh, and he and I were from same home home area. We'd gone to high school together. And Bob, and I just blurred out when Bob Dole's on TV. I said, that's a job I want someday. You know, I'm a freshman in Marlette Hall at Kansas State University. And my roommate just guffawed. He just thought that was the funniest thing. You know, I mean, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, he just thought that was completely right. I said, I know, I know, I know. But I just kind of blurted it out. And I think sometimes our dreams come to us in blurts where we just say something almost reflexively. But then that word starts creating pathways and opportunities in our life. And I know some people would kind of go, hey, you're, you're talking to strange for me to understand, but I I do think that the human mind and the nature of things around us often works that way. When, when, my best example of this is when Ronald Reagan spoke about the Berlin Wall, and he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Now, your students are way too young to remember any of this stuff, but this is a big part of what I remember. He didn't have a single tank around there He didn't have a plan to tear down this wall. And yet that wall started crumbling that day when he said that truth. So when you speak a truth for your own life or for somebody else, it starts creating the rumblings of it happening. Don't be scared to do it. So it was 1994 and you decided that you were going to follow that dream and run for Congress, second district here in, in Kansas, obviously. What, what was that process like? And what kind of planning and preparation did you go through uh, to ultimately be successful in that first run for Congress? Yeah, it, um, life is very cumulative. I know what you did in the past, uh, builds the foundation for your future. Um, Whatsoever a man sows, that will he reap. And so I'd been traveling the state for years as 
state president of future farmers and extension specialist in agricultural law, secretary of agriculture. And so I knew people throughout the state of Kansas and the uh, congressional seat came in. Another thing too, I was friends with Jim Slattery, who is the current congressman in the second district. And Jim calls me up one day. He's a Democrat. I'm a Republican. And he says, well, I think this has probably never been done in Kansas history, but I just want to let you know I'm going to run for governor. Uh, and I had been thinking about running for governor at that time, but he called me and I had an immediate piece about running for Congress then at that time. And uh, I just started organizing then, contacting people I'd worked with previously, asking if they would help me out, trying to figure out how you put, put together a campaign. Um, <coughs> and things started coming together. <coughs> Excuse me, Chuck. Sure. And then, obviously, <laughs> it was a, a pretty crowded primary, and that was obviously a, a, a tough contest, but you got through the primary and uh, won in November, the general election. So now you're congressman-elect. Were you thinking about that first meeting with Congressman Skubitz or what, you know, what was the kind of the first reaction after you, you made that huge step in a dream? <clears throat> you know, I mean, I, I did think some about Joe Skubitz, but I really thought a lot more about the time I'd been a White House fellow when I was agriculture secretary and I'd worked in D.C. for a year. Again, life is cumulative. And, and, and from that, I really had learned um, how some of how Washington works. And I also knew just from the being around politics that your biggest political capital that you have is right at the outset before you really know what you're doing, before you really kind of figure out how to operate things, that's when you're most powerful and, and useful. And so I knew the key here is to really get off fast and hard at the outset, just go, even though you're really kind of not fully staffed, not sure what you're exactly doing, if you're new at the position, go. And, and that proved to be a, a wise move as well. Uh, I was president or I was chairman of a loose knit group that we had called New Federalist. It was the conservative wing of the class of 94. It was the first Republican Congress in over 40 years. Uh, you know, none of us had much experience, but we had a passion and a drive and a desire. And we started really moving into to change things. And so that's really what I was thinking about right at the outset is how do you how do you get off to a fast start uh, was was really what I was focused on. Well, and you, you got off to a fast start. But then in 1996, a huge year in Kansas, because Senator Dole decides to run for president, he becomes the nominee, obviously. But um, we have two Senate seats that are open, U.S. Senate seats. And you've been in the House for one term or not even the full term yet. And you decide that you're going to run for the Senate seat, the um, I believe it was the Dole seat. Um, yes. And and so at that point, the Republican establishment, without getting too political here, you were not necessarily their choice. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but you decided that was the right thing to do. And I won't say an outsider because you'd been elected to Congress, 
but you were kind of, again, on the outside, a little bit of the establishment and running for this huge, huge seat. What, what was it like knowing that there were forces within your own party, maybe working against you um, and you'd only been in the house for, for one term. Why did you make the decision to do it? And what sustained you throughout that, that process? Yeah, well, the last part of that's the easier one for me. It was my faith that it sustained me. Uh, the year before, I'd had cancer. Uh, I had a melanoma. And, you know, again, I think there's something for your students. It's often really these adversities in life that put in you the character that can sustain you through the tougher times so that there's a real connection between the adversity uh, and the goal you're pursuing. So I'd had cancer and it was melanoma and we got a hold of it early and got ahead of it. But there's a period of time in there where we don't know exactly if we've gotten ahead of it or not. And, you know, I'm just saying, gosh, man, I, this could be the end. Uh, and, you know, it really caused me to, to sink into my faith. I just said, Lord, I give my life to you. I can't, I can't handle it anymore. And, and that, you know, kind of submission and that realization and that activation of a real faith, one that, that trusts God, that he really does exist. He really does love me. Gave me all the courage and sustenance and, that I needed. It, it, the Senate race <clears throat> became, now I won't say easy, but um, <clears throat> it, be, it became completely doable because I'm not dependent upon the opinion of others. I, I think this is where God's got me. I think this is where he's called me to win or lose. I'm good with this. And be, the year before I faced a challenge where I don't know if I'm going to, how this is going to come out. So, you know, it really kind of seemed like, I don't want to say a minor decision, but it kind of seemed like one, well, you know, it was just, just dealt with cancer. Uh, this is going to be fine. Uh, however this turns out and so it just it made it a easier thing to do honestly than running for the house the um, the prior year uh was we were taking on the establishment there was a break in the republican party between moderates and conservatives the moderates had run the party for a long time i was a conservative uh and so you know that that was when you know that break really started to accentuate and, and showcase itself so you ended up obviously winning, uh, became a United States Senator. You made a pledge that you would only serve two full terms in the United States Senate and ultimately kept that pledge. Um, but before we talk about what happened after that, I'm curious when you were in the House and in the Senate, what were some of the, the challenges? What would you consider one of your best accomplishments and maybe what was one of the biggest challenges while you were in Congress? I, I think one of my best accomplishments was I, I carried the first, carried in the Senate, the first anti-human trafficking bill. Uh, and human trafficking, people understand a lot more of now, but back then people didn't even think it was a topic, didn't think it was a thing. 
Uh, and I, I carried the first bill with uh, a Democrat senator, Senator Paul Wellstone out of Minnesota, who died later in a plane crash. Um, I consider that one of the great accomplishments. And also, honestly, I carried a Native American apology to apologize to broken treaties and U.S. government treatment of Native Americans. Apologies are very hard to get through. Uh, people don't like to apologize, and neither do governments. And uh, I think that was a major accomplishment in the African American Museum of History and Culture in D.C. That's a it's really about reconciliation and a lot of what I've been about, it's been about reconciliation. I, I consider some of those and, and other things that it was able to be a part of as major comment. The, one of the toughest things to do is honestly, is kind of to keep your character. Uh, and you know, you're in a, you're in a place of significant human power. You've got marble floors that you're walking on all the time and, even marble restrooms, uh, you know, you you just, and, you know, again, for a guy that's raised on a farm in eastern Kansas, you're kind of going, this is pretty cool. Uh, and you can start to really think, I'm pretty cool then, because this is pretty cool. And and just kind of keeping, kind of keeping grounded, really, that um, all this will pass and uh you know you just you, you try to maintain a sense of character a sense of what god would have us about you know god's a god that loves humility and hates pride and we are people that are full of pride i am and so i that that's that's a real challenge i mentioned you kept your your term limit pledge self-imposed term limit pledge and in 2010, the that was a year that um, the governor's election was taking place. You decided to run for governor, and you mentioned earlier in our conversation that you had thought about running for governor previously. And so, was that just a natural progression, or was there was there some other reason you decided to run for governor in 2010? Well, it was it was an open door at the time. I I really enjoyed my Senate uh, time and work, but I'd made a term limits pledge. And a, one of my mentors had once told me, when a man breaks his word, it breaks the man. And I thought, well, that's true. Uh, and I'm not going to break my word. And a lot of people had made term limits pledge and, you know, just kind of, oh, yeah, well, I meant that then, but I don't really now. And but I did. I meant it. I kept it. Uh, well, then the governorship is open. And, and that's another thing I guess I would say to your students, <clears throat> watch for the open doors, the open gates that are there in life, because often the opportunities will come to you as, a, as an open door. And you kind of look at it and you go, well, I don't know. I was actually thinking about doing this or doing that. But then you got this really nice opportunity in front of you. You go, okay. And to, and, to, and to think and ponder about those things. I think too many people react and they don't respond. And by that, I mean, they just, they see something they go, no. Instead of see something go, well, let me think about that uh, and ponder it. Uh, and that's what I mean by responding instead of reacting. Um, just huge difference. So I, you know, I'd look at it, ponder it for a while and think, you know, gosh, at one point in time, I wanted to serve as governor. I think I can take the, the connections and the assets and the ability that I have that I've 
gained through being a senator and congressman and secretary of agriculture to help my home state uh, and ran for governor and in what was uh, really the toughest job that I've held to date uh, was Kansas governor because we just had a huge financial crisis. We didn't have any growth taking place in the state. We, our pension system was busted. You know, our, our schools were underperforming our students. I mean, we just had a, just so many different problems taking place. And, and I was, you know, in a position to be able to help solve some of those problems. You were elected uh, with a, a big margin and became governor in January 2011, started working on those on those problems you mentioned. And in 20, well, it may have started in 2012, the process, but you brought JAG to the state of Kansas in your first term as governor. We we started in the 2013-2014 school year. Uh, at that time, there were 25 programs. That is still the largest launch of a JAG affiliate in organization history. So you decided to do it and do it big. Can you tell us, kind of walk through that process, why you thought it was important to bring the JAG program to Kansas and, and how that all happened? Well, I, I knew Ken Smith uh, was the, the nationwide head of it. I'd met him uh, being in the Senate. And again, that was kind of part of, for me, having been a senator and worked at the federal level, you, you made a lot of connections to different people of things that, that I thought could really help my state. And I used that a lot in addressing wind issues and water and welfare and just lots of in the pension system, for that matter, and economic growth. I knew Ken Smith uh, and Ken said, hey, you ought to do JAG and it really targets and helps students that really struggle in school. And, and I really have felt like that our K through 12 system underserves um, kids that struggle. I, I mean, I, I think it tries, but uh, so much of it's pointing people uh, towards higher education, which is good. I've got an advanced degree. I've taken advantage of that system, but there's a lot of students that just struggle in this system. And what I saw in JAG was a program that could really help that struggling student. Uh, and uh, I said, let's get it together and let's do it. And then we did something else that a lot of other states didn't do that helped us with the launch and make it such a big, big launch is we used some of our public assistance dollars uh, public dollars, public federal monies to launch JAG. A lot of others did it off of fundraising and corporate donations, which is good, great. Uh, but often it's hard to sustain. And can you find corporations that are going to be philanthropic enough to do that? Because they may get you know better some better workers out of it, but everybody does, honestly. And so so we just decided this would be really a good use of our public assistance dollars to help people before they get in a tough way. And, and, and I think that was a, I think that was a fabulous use of those dollars. Uh, and instead of building dependency, you build ability and you help people before they're in a difficult spot, which is, is always the best way of, you know, it, it, it's just better to stay in good health and just let yourself deteriorate. And then I'm gonna check into a hospital. 
and have somebody help me. Then I said, no, just get, get yourself back in shape. And so we did. Uh, we used those public assistance dollars for the launch. We put it in the school system, which was where it is, which I thought had really been underserving our, our students that are more challenged. Um, and it's been a fabulous program and a fabulous help to a group of students that that I just I think we're being underserved by our public education system. Well, and, and again, it it uh, certainly not to the scale, but it's I think you could certainly make the argument that we wouldn't be in our 10th year uh, and probably wouldn't exist uh, had you not had the, the foresight to to bring it to the to the state. So the organization uh, is forever grateful for for you doing that. And, and a lot of students around 13,000 students over the last 10 years have been served by by JAG K and and are on successful career paths uh, because of 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 you bringing it to the state. So thank you for that. Um, and I know that was just one one thing you did as as governor of Kansas. Uh, in 2014, you ran for re-election. It was a battle. You won. Uh, and so you continued your streak of, of never losing an election in the state of Kansas. And I know you didn't do it to continue the streak, um, but there were still some things you wanted to do as governor. Can you talk about some of the challenges the challenges, whether it's policy or or something else, and then some of the rewards. Uh, and, and I had a little bit of a look into the the governor's office, uh, and and certainly have uh, uh, that perspective. But I don't think anyone can fully appreciate what it is like unless you're actually in the chair. So can you can you share with our students maybe some of the the highlights and and maybe some of the challenging times and and um, you know why why someone should consider doing it uh, if that's what their dream is? Yeah, the the highlights are big, Chuck, uh, and the difficulties are substantial. But in relative to the highlights, they're pretty small. I'm I'm pro life. Uh, we had 17,000 fewer abortions while I was governor. And I can't take credit for all those, but I did sign, I think, 19 pro-life bills uh, that helped really push the agenda and the discussion about the nature of early human life and whether it's sacred and valuable or, or um, can be disposed of. And, um, and people are alive today. Uh, and that's a highlight. Uh, you're 13,000 JAG students and graduates, and the number of them that are successfully launched um, is a highlight. I, I would meet, we did a mentoring program for people coming out of prison in Kansas, and I would try to meet uh, as often as I could uh, several times with people that have been mentors and mentees of people coming out of prison. And when they would launch into a successful re-entry back into society, that was just one of those, this is awesome. This is what it's about. It's about helping people that are in difficult spots. Uh, and you just, you feel like it's all worth it. The difficulties really are that, I mean, you just, the, the, you know, the, the amount that you get poked at and 
made fun of and accused of ill motives and a number of things that you get accused of in public life, kind of the, the public um, beatings that you take uh, are, they're hard. I mean, they, they, they sting. Um, and so, you know, those, those are difficult uh, to take. But again, if you compare it to lives saved or transformed, it's, it's all worth it. In January of 2018, you were sworn in as the ambassador, the U.S. ambassador at large for international religious freedom. And so you resigned uh, being governor and took on this new role. And I have to admit, I'd never heard of the U.S. ambassador at large for international religious freedom. So can you tell us a little bit about what that diplomatic position does, some of the highlights during your term, and and then we want to talk about what you're doing now. You know, I consider it the most important job I've ever held, um, and it advances the human right of religious freedom around the world. And the United States is the country that stands for it. It's a statutorily created position. When I was in the Senate, I helped create this position because we just saw around the world, all these people persecuted for simply wanting to peacefully practice their faith. Uh, as, as a follower of Jesus, I, I've, just, I've, seen, I've seen more persecution of Christians taking place now than any time in the history of Christendom. And the, the Nigeria, China, uh, Uzbekistan, North Korea, Vietnam, rural Vietnam areas, just it's all over the world. And most of them you'll never know about or hear about. Uh, many get killed without anybody knowing. God knows. But it's not just Christians. It's the, the Yazidis in northern Iraq. It's the Uyghurs in western China. It's the Rohingya, Muslim Rohingyas in Burma. And I went to all those, I didn't go to China. I'm blocked now from, my visa was taken from China. They don't, they don't like me and I don't care for the Chinese government either. So it's a mutual feeling, I guess. Um, but what you do is you stand up for people's right to freely practice their faith. This is a fundamental human right. It's in our constitution. It's in the UN Charter of Human Rights. And there's another very interesting thing about it. Religion's the only institution in the world that has enough adherence and enough passion in people to stand up to a government. It's the only institution. So it really acts as a check on government. And that's why governments, particularly communist governments like China, hate religion. They loathe it. They'll do anything to crush it because they know it's the only actual institution that has the strength and adherence to stand up to them. And so the degree you can strengthen religious freedom, you strengthen human rights. And then there's a final point about this. It's a, it's a human right that's deepest in us. This one's closest to the soul. It's the soul's human right to choose to believe or not to believe and to follow and to to change your beliefs, no government should be allowed to thwart that or stand in its way, as long as you're peaceful about it. And so it became a fundamental uh, human rights issue under the last administration. 
Uh, we started driving it, uh, conservatives and Republicans in particular, but Democrats too, as a fundamental human right around the world, around which you can build your other human rights, a religion of uh, freedom of speech and assembly and these other basic building blocks of human society. And it became a major foreign policy issue. The final point on this, Chuck, is almost every genocide in the last century has been of a religious minority. You can think of the Jews in World War II, but you can look at right now at the Uyghurs who are Muslims in Western China. Um, both are have been classified as genocides, and both were religious minorities. It's, that's normally who gets a genocide is a religious minority. The official position or your your tenure in the position ended in January 2021, but I understand the work continues. So can you tell us what you're doing now after leaving the official diplomatic position and, and what you're doing with the Brownback Group? Um, I've got several things going on. I helped start up a, a national committee for religious freedom. Uh, it's an organization in the United States to stand for your free exercise, right? Because it's getting crowded in on here where people aren't being allowed to practice their faith peacefully and freely. I co-chair an international religious freedom summit, uh, have the past two years where we bring people from all over the world together uh, to um, encourage and build together the grassroots movement of religious freedom around the world. We had about 80 different groups uh, uh, part of that event last year, and we'll do it again this year, January 31 and February 1st of next year, associated with the National Prayer Breakfast. So we're going to be right up next to it and hope to have a really nice uh, global audience uh, for it. Um, that's been going well and, and galvanizing the movement. But this needs to be a grassroots movement for it to be effective. Uh, now I'm writing and working on a book on China's war on faith. Because uh, I, I really, Ronald Reagan back uh, in his early years really went at Soviet communism and its uh, denigration of people of faith, of, of Jews and evangelicals, and was showcasing this is what communism does to people of faith. Well, we've got an example now of what communism in China does to people of faith, and they seek to dominate the world. And we need to push back on that. And so that's what that book project is about. And then I've been, we're, wind, we're winding down on this, but I've helped get a lot of religious minorities out of Afghanistan. When we pulled our troops out of there, things really collapsed. And if you were a religious minority, you just either had to go into deep hiding or get out of, get out of town. And um, we've helped to uh, I've worked with a group, loose kind of group, to get a lot of religious minorities out because they were just getting killed or imprisoned or slaughtered. And um, and then I got a bunch of other kind of different projects. Brownback Group uh, works on, you know, several of those. Uh, I've been working with the Iranian uh, diaspora. There's a lot of foment going on in Iran uh, now. Uh, I hope the regime changes. I've, I've pushed for that for a number of years. And uh, continuing to do that. And, um, and I'm also kind of rebuilding my uh, my family time. I, uh, I took a lot away from my wife and I have elderly parents and children and grandchildren. And I'm, I'm trying to be a little more intentional about being a dad and a granddad and a son. 
Well, and that kind of leads to the the final question, which you may have just answered with with that. But uh, outside of all your work for religious freedom and and uh, the other things you're doing, what kind of hobbies do you have, if any, or how do you uh, express yourself um, outside of all the the work you're doing? You know, I still love the farm. Uh, anytime I can get down and or get outside, uh, I like doing it. And that's not been as much as I'd like because I, I travel quite a bit with the international religious freedom work and the national religious freedom work, too. Um, and then really family is the other major occupation uh, with the outside time. I, I was talking with a former state senator, uh, Mary Pilcher Cook. Um, Oh, this has been earlier this year. And I was asking her what she's doing. And she said, you know, I'm really kind of trying to make up uh, for all that lost family time uh, that when she was away and in the state Senate and all. And I I thought, you know, that's that is really a part of it. Uh, My family, they I don't they didn't struggle. They're resilient. They're good, uh, good and strong. But it was I I took away a lot uh, from them. And uh, to try to be able to be more available and there. And my dad's had a lot of health issues to be able to be available and there. Um, that's just has been a gift. I, I really love it and enjoy it and, and glad to be here and not in Washington where I can I can do those things more often. That that's been nice. Well, Ambassador Sam Brownback, thank you for your service to Kansas, to our country, uh, to the world uh, with, with your work. And thank you for appearing on Espresso Yourself with Chuck. Thank you, Chuck, for leading JAG so effectively for so long. Keep it up. 